Well, it's good to see all of you here this morning and uh, glad to have all of those that are visiting with us today. We're glad you came and trust you'll be blessed and already have been. And uh, we, Dave and Nancy and Mary and I, got back on Thursday from the Fire Fellowship uh, Conference in Estes Park, Colorado, and now we can breathe again. It was it was hard to breathe, 8,500 feet above sea level, and uh, one morning I had I experienced uh, altitude sickness. I'd never experienced that before, but it is not a fun thing to have. Let me tell you. And so, uh, yeah, to, Linda's saying, drink water, drink water. Yeah, that's true. We had to drink a lot of water. I'm not used to drinking that much water. Uh, so, uh, but we enjoyed it. It was good. We thank you as a church for sending us. And uh, uh, it's always a blessing to go to fire. The fellowship is great. The encouragement is, is great. And uh, to know that uh, we are connected with a group that that is... Uh, distinctly biblical as we try to be is a blessing in itself. So uh, thank you for that. Well, I did not have, getting back on Thursday late, did not have time to do a full exposition of the passage in John. And so I have uh, decided to fall back this week uh, to a passage in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. If you'll turn there, I'm going to read from verses 3 through 14, and I probably won't get through all of this this morning, but we'll give it a try as much as we can. Ephesians 1, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. What a passage of Scripture this is. From verse 3 all the way through verse 14, one long sentence in the original Greek. It's been divided up into various sentences in English. 
It is a challenging passage, to say the least. It's been a challenge to many. It's been a blessing to others. And a sort of a sense of, or a, a part of a confusion to many. These verses are referred to by Doc Charles Erdman, uh, a great Bible teacher from the past, as a hymn of praise consisting of three stanzas. The first stanza, through verse 6, relates to the past. And God the Father is the subject. And the chorus closes in verse 6 to the praise of the glory of His grace. Stanza 2 relates to the present. And the Son of God is the subject. And it concludes in verse 12 to the praise of His glory. The third stanza relates to the future. And God the Holy Spirit is the subject. And it concludes in verse 14 to the, unto the praise of His glory. Dr. Erdman shows these three stanzas Stanzas are bound into a harmonious unity by a recurring theme. And that theme is in the beloved, verse 6, in Christ, verse 12, in Him, verse 13. You see, it all culminates and revolves around Christ and His work of redemption. Dr. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him, that is, in Christ. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to the glory of God and for His glory. So in chapter 1 of Ephesians, we see the glory of God in salvation. God the Father planned the church. That's the glory of God in election. God the Son paid the price for the church. That's the glory of God in redemption. And God the Holy Spirit protects the church in verses 11 through 14. That is the glory of God in eternal security. I'm so glad that we don't have to wonder if God is going to keep His promises or not. He has promised us. He cannot lie. And he cannot fail. Therefore, we are secure in him. Now notice, if you will, the plan of God is revealed in verses 3 through 6. And that has a reference to the past. And in verses 13 and 14, the work of the Holy Spirit is in reference to the future. So we have past present and future given to us in these verses. Notice the word we in verse 11. The we in verse 11 seems to be speaking to a distinct group of people as compared to the we or us in verses 3 through 10. In verse 11, he is talking about believing Jews. Paul himself was a Jew. And so writing to this church, he first references the Jews. This is supported by two facts. In verse 11, he uses the word also, where he says, 
In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In him we have obtained. Who is the we? Well, it's the Jews. He's speaking first to the Jew. And the reason he does that, and we know that, is because verse 13, he says, in him you also. So now he's speaking to a different group. He's speaking to Gentile believers. And he does this on purpose. First, because it was to the Jew that the, that the doctrine of salvation or the work of salvation came first. Acts chapter 3, verse 26, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first, Peter said, to the Jew, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Paul writes in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then also to the Gentile. Now we can divide this section, verses 11 and 12, into two parts. Under one heading. And the heading is the basis of our inheritance. There is an inheritance that every believer receives from God through Christ. It comes in two perspectives. There is first the, the divine perspective. And then there is the human perspective. Let's look first at the word inheritance in verse 11. We just read it in verse 10, how everything in heaven and earth will be unified in Christ. That day is coming. And I think it's going to come quicker than many anticipate. Our task until that day is to practice and maintain unity until he comes. And unity is some, among believers is something that has to be worked at. It's something that has to be uh, found and then maintained. Because unity can disappear so quickly. And it generally disappears when someone decides they want their own way versus God's way. Notice he says, we have obtained an inheritance. That, that, those words, we have obtained an inheritance, translates one single Greek word. When something in the Greek, when this language was spoken, when something was in the future, was so certain that it was, it could not possibly fail, it was, it was often spoken of as if it had already occurred. This is the way the the word is used here. We have obtained. It is is in the passive voice, so that means that it's coming to us from somewhere else. And he relates that as coming from God to us. He says, we have obtained this inheritance. Now, as a comparison to that, look over in chapter 2. Look at verse 6. Paul uses... This same Greek word in a different tense. He uses it in the, in the active tense here. He raised us up and 
with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ. Now let me ask you a question. Are you seated with Christ in heavenly places? You say, well, actually, I'm seated right here in these seats this morning in the church building. You see, it hasn't actually in reality happened yet. But it is so sure to happen that he can speak of it as though it had already happened. You are seated with Christ in heaven. If you know him as your Lord, if you've followed him in forgiveness of sin. So this is how he uses this word. Now, there are two possible ways of viewing the inheritance. One is that this inheritance he speaks of would indicate that we, as believers, are Christ's inheritance. That God has given to Christ people from out of the world to be his own. They are gifts to him. And we know that the New Testament teaches this. In fact, it was <clears throat> it was said of Israel that they were his inheritance. For they are your people and your heritage whom you brought out by your great power. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted inheritance or his allotted heritage. Jesus often spoke of believers as his inheritance. We see it in John 6, John 10, John 17. Over and over again, he says that the Father gave people out of the world to him as his gifts. So from eternity past, God the Father planned and determined that every person whom he would call to be his own would trust in his son for salvation and would be given to his son as a possession for a glorious inheritance. Think of what that's going to be like in heaven when all of Christ's inheritance is gathered to him, all praising him at the same time for who he is and what he's done. There's another way of looking at this. It's opposite of that way. And this says that that the believers are the ones who receive an inheritance from Christ. Now we know that that's true. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading. Kept in heaven for you. We do have an inheritance. And that inheritance is Christ. It's Christ himself. He is the gift from heaven that is given to us. In him is life. In Him is eternal life. And He has given that life to us. Titus 3, 7. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Romans chapter 8. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then we are heirs 
of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. So both translations could be true. Both sides. We are the inheritance to Christ, and Christ is the inheritance to us. Throughout scriptures, believers are spoken of as belonging to God, and he is spoken of as belonging to them. The New Testament speaks of our being in Christ and of him being in us. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Now, this is an incredible miracle that only God can comprehend in its fullness. Every believer has been to the cross of Calvary. Every believer has been nailed spiritually to that cross with the Savior. And every believer has died there and been buried with Christ. And every believer has risen with Christ. All of those things are true. Of those who have trusted and followed Christ. So Christ was crucified, buried, and raised not only for every believer, but with every believer. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 2, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. So there's resurrection. I live in Christ, he says. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in him. Is that what you're doing? Are you living your life by faith in Christ? Having been died with him and having rose with him? <clears throat> Turn to 1 Corinthians, if you will, chapter 3 with me very quickly. I want you to notice, <clears throat> notice this... Uh, Passage, chapter 3, verses 21 to 23. Chapter 3, verse 21 to 23. Notice what he says. So let no one boast in men. Why? Because you didn't do any of this. You had... You had no part in it except to believe and he gave you the power to do that. So notice, let no one boast in men for all things are yours. What's he talking about? Go read on. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ, and Christ is God's. What is he talking about? He's talking about the inheritance. He's talking about that which you receive from God the Father through Jesus Christ the Lord. Everything, as I look at this, I can say, everything is mine. Everything. Christ belongs to me. The scriptures belong to me. 
Even death may belong to me. All is mine. It is mine because he has given it to me. Christ is mine. God is mine. What an experience. That we can look out and say, I'm an heir to everything that exists. You ever thought about it like that? You think you're... You think your inheritance here is something. It's nothing compared to this. Apart from Jesus Christ, the only ultimate and eternal thing a person can receive from God. Now get this carefully. Apart from Christ and what he gives us, the only thing that a person can receive from God is condemnation and judgment. No good work will do. No family heritage or lineage will work. God is not impressed with anything in humanity and what it has to offer. He will not receive it. The only thing he receives is those who have placed their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ alone. For salvation. Peter. Speaking of this says this. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name given under heaven. Among men. Whereby we must be saved. John writes. Whoever believes in him. Is not condemned. But whoever does not believe in him is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Condemned already. The only way to get out from under that condemnation and judgment is through Christ and what he did on the cross. Faith in that and that alone. Some of you may be saying, well, I'm... I'm not worthy to be a part of God's inheritance. And you're right. None of us are worthy to have it. We'll never be worthy enough to have it. It's given to us by His grace. And God knew that. That's why the grace of God is such a wonderful thing. It is this effectual calling of the Holy Spirit that brings that about. And it's necessary because if The Holy Spirit did not effectually reach in and call individuals to faith in Christ. No one would come. No one would believe. Apart from the Holy Spirit calling people to faith in Christ, every one of us would say, crucify him. Just crucify him. Get get rid of him. That's what the world wants. They're running as far and as hard as they can away from the God of heaven. The day will come when they will call out for the mountains and rocks to fall on them and hide them from the one who sits on the throne. So the question arises, why did God make us his inheritance and why did he give us these manifold blessings as an inheritance? Why did he do it? It certainly was not because of us. We are not the center focus here. 
Let's look at the divine perspective. It comes in three parts. First is God's predestination. Now, I know that a lot of people hate that word. But, folks, it is a biblical teaching just as much as anything else is, and it cannot be ignored. So notice what he says. Being predestined, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. What is that saying? Well, it's saying that God established a plan and he's carrying out that plan like he wants it to unfold. God is doing this. Man's not doing it. God is doing it. And if God didn't do it, none of us would be here. None of us would be worshiping this morning. We would be all out doing our own thing. Enjoying our sin somewhere. So the first function of the Spirit is to fulfill God's predestinating purpose. As Christians, we are what we are because God chose to make us before any man, make us that before any man was ever created. Think about it. Before the world was created, before the universe was created, before there were stars in the heavens, there was just nothing There wasn't even space. Can you fathom that? How do you get rid of space? There's just God. And he and he devised and and made up this plan in his wisdom. He made up this plan to create the universe and the world and people and a a heritage that would bring him glory. Forever and ever. And it's going to be there. It's going to work that way. Because he cannot fail. At first, this seems to be saying the same thing as verse 4, where he says, even as he chose us before him in the world that we should be holy and blameless, in love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. Seems almost to be saying the same thing, but it's not saying the same thing. That predestination in verse 4 was his working of it in his plan to bring it to pass as an act. In verse 11, he uses the word predestined, but it's not the same word as in verse 4. The word in verse 11, used only there in the New Testament, means to determine, to choose, to cast a lot. To a point. So in that context, it's better rendered to be chosen, to be appointed, to be destined for something. Well, what are we destined for? We are destined for the glory of God in Christ Jesus. That's our, des- that's our destination in life. <clears throat> Actually, in this verse, Paul is carrying out the argument a bit farther, showing how that having 
first predestined us to salvation, God now chooses those who have been predestined to work out his purpose in their particular lives. So God chose us, brought us to salvation, and now he is working in us his will, his purpose, until the day that we are taken to heaven to be with Christ. He's working all that out. And Satan and sin and corruption and the world and the flesh cannot stop it. Might try to interfere with it. They can't stop it. And so now God, in this accomplishment, is it's accomplished by the Holy Spirit who opens our eyes to understand what Christ has done for us. He grants faith to believe in Him. He moves our wills to embrace Him as our treasure in life above all things. William Hendrickson writes this, Never fate nor human merit determines our destiny. The benevolent purpose that we should be holy and faultless sons of God, destined to glorify Him forever, is fixed, being part of a larger universe-embracing plan. That's why you're here this morning. You're here to carry on the worship that will be carried on in heaven when we're there. And everything that we do in heaven, whatever that looks like, It will be to the worship of the Lamb who was slain and the glory that He deserves. God did not only make this plan that includes absolutely all things that ever take place in heaven or on earth or in hell, past, present, and future, pertaining to both believers and unbelievers, to angels and demons, to physical as well as spiritual entities, But he also wholly carries it out. He makes sure that it happens the way he planned it to happen. You see, if it weren't that way, then God is not God. Because he would be out of control of something. And God cannot be out of control of anything. That's why Paul says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He could say that because he knows God is going to bring it to pass. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure, not yours, his good pleasure. So we see God's predestination. Second, we see God's power, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God's power. That word works is an interesting word. It's actually the Greek word energeo. It's a verb. Energeo sounds like energy. That's exactly where we get our word energy or to energize. You know the energizer bunny? Well, that's the word. Energy. Energetic. Well, so what is he saying? He's saying that when God created the universe, he gave it sufficient energy to begin immediately to operate as he had planned it. 
He didn't just fling everything out there, speak everything out there, and then let it motivate itself to work. He created it by the voice of his mouth, by the words of his mouth. He created it and it began working energetically, instantly. He created it to function and it was created functioning. Think about Adam when he created Adam. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Adam became a living soul and his body functioned instantly after he was created. Unlike the things we make, God's creations do not have to be redesigned, prototyped, tested, fueled, or charged to function. The creation of God is the only true perpetual energy. And when he tells it to stop, it stops. God is working out his plan according to the counsel of his will, what he decides, how he decides, and it's to his good pleasure The combination of these words, good pleasure, counsel, and will in these verses all give forceful emphasis to God's sovereignty for including the Jewish believers in the church which is headed up by Christ and adding to them the Gentile believers to make up His church of both. I'll tell you, I've come to hate With a passion, this division that we see that's called racial. It's a farce. There's no such thing. You cut us, we all bleed the same. Doesn't matter what color our skin is. Doesn't matter what our ethnicity is or where we're from. All human beings have blood types and they're all, they're all work together. They're the same. There's only one race, just one. That's the human race. And I'm sick of hearing the division that's caused by those who would say otherwise. That's free. I just threw that in. (laughs) Number three is God's preeminence. Notice that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the glory of God. To the praise of his glory. This is the third function of the spirit. He does all to the glory of Christ. And Christ gives all glory to the father. God is one. Colossians 1.18. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning. The firstborn from the dead. That everything that in him. Everything might be preeminent. He is the preeminent one. He is the reason we're here. He's the reason we sing. He's the reason we give. He's the reason we preach. He's the reason we come together and fellowship. It's Him. So mankind is redeemed for the purpose of restoring the divine image that was marred and lost by sin in the garden. God's desire is that His creatures give Him glory by both proclaiming and displaying 
His glory. This is the reason He redeems people. It's not for their benefit necessarily, although they do benefit from it. It's it's for Him. God's concerned. God is concerned with His glory. Some people might say that's the height of egotism. And that would be true if God were not who He is. But since He is the highest, since He is the holiest, since He is the greatest, since He is the most glorious being in all of existence, it's not egotism for Him to say that. For He is worthy of all of that and more. You and I certainly couldn't say it. The scripture presents salvation from God's perspective so that he gets the full credit for it. Oh, I've heard people say, yeah, well, I had the good sense to trust Christ back when I was, you know. Good sense? None of us had good sense. The only sense we had was to sin. And to live that way. God seeks glory for the right reasons. And because he alone is deserving of it. His seeking of the glory is a holy desire. Of which he is supremely and only worthy to have. Charles Spurgeon writes. You storms howl out His greatness. Let your thunders roll like drums in the march of God's armies. Let your lightning write His name in fire on the midnight darkness. Let the immutable void of space, the illimitable void of space become one mouth for song. And let the unnavigated regions of space through its shoreless depths, bear through the infinite remote the name of Him whose goodness endures forever. He's great. He's worthy to be praised. Finally, there's the human perspective, which I do not have time to complete, but I want you to think about that human perspective In these ways, number one, the human will is imprisoned in sin. Imprisoned. Just look at society. Look at people. Look how they're they're trapped in their sinful lives and they cannot get out. There's no way out. Except Christ. Through Christ. Second, the human will is impotent. It it has no power. It has no power spiritually to do anything because it's dead. Dead in sin. I'm going to end with this poem. It's so good. It's called the It's called the Potter's House. Listen to it. To the Potter's House I went one day. And I watched him while molding the vessels of clay. And many a wonderful lesson I drew as I noted the process the clay went through. Trampled and broken, downtrodden and rolled, to render more plastic and fit for the mold. How like the clay 
that is human, I thought. When in heavenly hands to perfection brought, for self must be cast as the dust at his feet. Before it is ready for service made meet. And pride must be broken and self-will lost. All laid on the altar, whatever the cost. But lo, by and by, a delicate vase of wonderful beauty and exquisite grace. Was it once a vile clay? Ah, yes, yet how strange. The potter has wrought so marvelous a change. Not with a not a trace of the earth, not a mark of the clay. The fires of the furnace have burned them away. Wondrous skill of the potter, the praise he is due, in whose hands to perfection and beauty it grew. Thus with souls lying still, content in God's hand, they do not his power of working withstand. They are molded and fitted, a treasure to hold, vile clay now transformed into purest gold. That's you and me, who know Christ in the forgiveness of sins. Vile vessels of clay ugly and sin covered he took and molded into vessels that he will make into pure gold do you know him today have you trusted him today are you following him do you love the lord jesus christ do you know him in the forgiveness of your sins if you don't i i implore you To repent of your sins and turn to Christ. Find salvation and forgiveness before God. You will not have to be in that group. That unbelieving group. That will be condemned and judged on the final day. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day. We thank you for the Word of God. We thank you for this beautiful passage in Ephesians the wonderful, blessed, heavenly gifts that you have given to us. You are ours and we are yours. What grace, what love to take vile sinners like us and turn them into sons of God, children of God. We thank you for this and we pray your blessing. Speak to all hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.